gentlemen and corner kick fam welcome back for the first time following the completion of the 2021-2022 european soccer year it's time for one of our favorite episodes the annual corner kick preview recap where we look back at our premier league preview pod from august 11th and see what we got right and mostly what we got wrong before we get into that before you find out who amongst us was the most correct and who amongst us aired the most. We will talk about the fracas that ensued alongside the actual action on the pitch of the UEFA Champions League final from this last weekend in Paris. I am Nathan Strauss, joined by a man uh, who did not have to abandon his 550-pound seat at this Champions League final, Nick Govinden. I am broken and I hate this sport. He did have to abandon his 550-pound seat on a flight from Mississippi to Boston, though. <laughs> my word. Yeah. <laughs> That's an odyssey in and of itself. <laughs> that was my Champions League final this weekend. And we are also joined by a man uh, who nearly got lost biking in Boston this week and almost did a header into the Massachusetts Bay. It's Caleb Rhodes. I will say Somerville is is a humbling place to, to travel through. I thought that you know, knowing Cambridge and having spent some time in Somerville was sufficient to just, you know, go out on a long bike ride. The answer is no. I, I was lost in the wilds, um, but I did make it back in time for the Champions League final, which is really all that matters. Also, Nathan really going with preview recap when preview review was sitting right there. Oh, wow. That's a rare, a rare missed opportunity for a pun right there. I have to yeah. say, Nick, credit to you for that. But uh, Nick, I think it's only fair, seeing as you were the one who had the, the biggest dog in the fight uh, for the Champions League final. Do you want to talk about the game first or the off-pitch events first? Uh, let's. I mean, let's do the game first, because I think clearly the story here that is going to continue past the game for several weeks is going to be you know, the ongoing dispute between Liverpool, Real Madrid, and the French authorities slash UEFA. I think to get into the game... Um, I mean, this was disappointing, right? This has been, the, Liverpool were coming off of a very disappointing result in the previous weekend, you know, letting the Premier League title slip out of their hands to Man City, following that, you know, crazy Ilkay Gundogan-inspired comeback for the citizens. And Liverpool, you could tell that they were limping into this game somewhat. You know, Thiago made the starting 11. He was deemed fit to play. However, there was an instance about 15 minutes before you know, the original kickoff time where Nabi Keita was in deep conversations with Jurgen Klopp and the coaching staff, and it looked like you know, Thiago wasn't going to be fit to play. It turned out he was, which I think ended up being the correct decision. He, he had a decent enough game in the middle of the park for Liverpool. Uh, Fabinho you know, was playing his first game in about three weeks after his hamstring injury uh, towards the end of the Premier League season. And then I think the whole... You know, Liverpool accumulated around just over 2.2 XG 
throughout this game. They had plenty of chances to put Real Madrid to bed. And I think in our preview discussion, we really discussed, you know, the the powers of a, you know, rejuver- rejuvenation of this Real Madrid team and also the ability for them just to, to stick around and deal damage against the toughest of opponents. And I think this game kind of followed the script that the three of us had sort of discussed where, you know, Madrid are going to be the inferior team. You know, Liverpool are going to have their fair share of the ball. It's not like Madrid are infallible. There were certainly opportunities in this game. Sadio Mane hitting the post. Mo Salah forcing an incredible save out of, you know, the amazing Thibaut Courtois, who I think, you know, he was spectacular on the day, deservedly the man of the match. However, I think Liverpool, you could tell that they were playing game 63 of a 63-game season here. They looked beleaguered. They looked tired towards the end of the game. They ran out of ideas around the 60th minute. They looked flustered and frustrated. Um, usually this season, the, the change to the 4-2-3-1, bringing in Roberto Firmino and dropping him into the system has really helped them. It kind of hindered them towards the end of this game. I thought they looked even more specula- speculative and directionless. And yeah, it was a disappointing loss. Vinicius, I think this is probably the 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 jump for him, you know, scoring the winning goal in a Champions League final to go from, you know, promising elite wonder kid to promising super, to no longer promising, but superstar on the biggest stage. And I think Karim Benzema has sewn up his case for the Ballon d'Or by winning this medal. But Real Madrid and Carlo once again pull the wool over Liverpool's eyes in a game that I think the Reds will probably feel like they should have, should have put the nail in the coffin and put this one to bed early in the first half. Yeah, I mean... Two statistics stand out to me. The first is that expected goal statistic, right? That Liverpool had so many more shots and created so many more chances and therefore accrued a lot more XG over the course of the game. And the fact that they had, you know, over two and scored zero, again, points to sort of the massive influence of Courtois on proceedings. The other statistic that sticks out to me, though, is sort of the big chances created And so Madrid only had four shots in this game. They created three big chances to Liverpool's one. And so I think, you know, there might be a tendency to try to analyze this as Madrid, you know, parking the bus, yada, yada. I actually think that they had a really defined strategy, which was sit deep so that you can't have, you know, you know, Alexander-Arnold or Robertson or the midfield flinging balls over the top to Liverpool's front three. We're going to sit deep and absorb that pressure, really prevent Liverpool from creating the types of high-quality chances on the break that they like to make. And then we're going to do what we do as Real Madrid best, which is breaking electrically, getting the ball to Modric, getting the ball to Valverde, and then having, you know, one of Vinicius and Benzema to finish it off. And so I think both sides really played the way that they like to play in big games. It's just that Madrid's strategy and Madrid's confidence that they can get the job done in a situation like this is unparalleled. As I mentioned, you know, in our in our preview pod ahead of this, Um, and it pains me that this result happened, um, but I don't think we can fully be surprised by the outcome one question i i did have though and sorry to cut you off a little bit nathan is you know the big decision i think for liverpool was whether to start jota or or diaz in that front three 
did he get it wrong, Jurgen Klopp, by picking Diaz over Jota? No, I don't think so. And I think you could see when Diogo Jota come on, came on, they ran into similar issues just in terms of Danny Carvajal being supremely excellent on on the day. And Diaz, I think this, in the second half of the season, you know, this has been the big game lineup from Jurgen Klopp. You know, this was the front three that caused Man City a lot of problems in the FA Cup semifinal. You know, this was the front three that started both the FA Cup final and the Carabao Cup final. So I, I don't think, I mean, I think Luis Diaz, this was definitely one of his poorer performances in a Liverpool shirt. However, I don't think you can say, you know, on the balance of, of what Liverpool had done coming into this game, that it was the wrong decision. And I think Diogo Jota is certainly someone who can kind of feel aggrieved in the second half of the season. You know, he's he's scored over 20 goals in this campaign for Liverpool and he has sort of been pushed down back into the fourth man position by Luis Diaz, by the arrival of Diaz, and just how well, just how well Diaz has fit into, you know, the Liverpool gig and pressing system. However, I think I think Klopp stuck by, you know, his big game strategy as it has been the case this season. And I think, you know, this is a third final in a row where Liverpool have failed to score a goal. So I think you can I can kind of understand where that question is coming from. However, I think just just in terms of, you know, what Liverpool have done since Diaz has come in in January, I think it was the right decision to play the front three that, that he did. Yeah, I, and I was that's sort of what I was going to lead into. I think you guys summed up the, the on-the-pitch action and the sort of ramifications. Um, but my big takeaway from this is that, you know, it came out a few days before the final that Sadio Mane uh, is likely on his way to Bayern at this point. Uh, and, you know, he just turned 30, so he's on the wrong side of, you know, what tends to be the sort of stick or twist marker, um, especially for a club that isn't funded by, um, you know, a nation state like Liverpool. So they actually do have to operate with some sort of like rational um, approaches in the marketplace. And I think that we saw from Liverpool the same thing that we've seen from Man City in the past. And I know they play different ways. I know they play with different systems. But even when Firmino came on, I was looking at this team and thinking like, wow, this team really needs like a center forward or a striker. And, you know, the name Christopher Nkunku, who's coming off of just an absurd season, um, has has sort of come up recently. But I think that what we saw a little bit over the second half of this season from Salah, certainly from Mane, is that they were coming infield so much and Diaz's ability to overlap on the outside, I think, helped create some space for them. But I just think that you'll end up scoring more goals when you have a tra- like a, a, a different type of goal threat um, through the middle. And as Salah's contract situation draws on, and as Liverpool and FSG prepare for this summer, having lost you know this this trophy and then having finished you know just inches away from the Premier League title. I wonder if they look to sort of address that at all. As as great as Mane has been, um, you know, coming from the left through the middle in the last couple of years. Yeah, I I agree. I think having a slightly more conventional or at least a, a player who plays striker primarily could be good. I think the other area that stood out to me from this final, though, really was having something different in the midfield. Um, I think, you know, Henderson is not the most dynamic 
player. He's not someone who can really, you know, like dribble through or break lines, um, you know, do something that's not sort of passing uh, in order to sort of progress the ball forward. Tiago is, is, can do that, but really prefers to be more of a pass master. And then Fabinho, obviously not, <laughs> also not a dribbler. And I think they brought in Keita to hopefully do that slightly. Um, but he couldn't really get it done. And I think that there is an opportunity for having someone a little trickier um, in the midfield for Liverpool. And maybe that is someone, you know, like Harvey Elliott in, in the future, but even more so than kind of striking. Because again, Liverpool had nine shots on target. They created a lot of chances and it really was Courtois that, that foiled a lot of them. It was like the midfield for me that lacked a kind of extra dimension to break down an extremely disciplined Real Madrid side. Right, and I think in the last Champions League final where these two sides met up in 2018, obviously you know, Mo Salah goes down in the 30th minute and is forced to come off after the Ramos incident. But the other player that Liverpool were missing through injury in that final, and you know, he had been missing, he went off injured in the semifinal against Roma, was Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who I think that season was absolutely spectacular as that you know man running deep from midfield into the box causing chaos you know he was able to put his athleticism about he was able to you know create something from a bit further back on the pitch for you know the Firmino Mane Sala triumvirate in their first season and I think you saw that Liverpool were sort of missing that component in this game and I think at the beginning of the season Caleb you're right you know we saw the Trent Alexander-Arnold Harvey Elliott Mo Salah triumvirate on the right side of the pitch for Liverpool and I think that that really led to them having a brilliant start to the season. You know, they they looked like, you know, a completely rejuvenated side with Elliot being able to put himself about and he had a bit of a free reign than just sticking to the right side of the pitch in, in center midfield. So I definitely think, you know, we'll see more of Elliot next season, you know, following his recovery from some serious injuries early on in his career. But I am not shocked that Liverpool are looking to bolster their midfield options as well as it seems you know, replacing Sadio Mane with a, with it was rumored Alistair Gold actually reported that had Tottenham not finished in the top four places, Liverpool were going to lodge a quote unquote competitive bid for someone of the caliber of Hunmin Son. So I wouldn't be shocked if Liverpool go for a big name in attack this summer, and I also wouldn't be shocked if after the last champ after like they did after the last Champions League final loss, they bought you know quite strongly in midfield as well. Maybe someone whose name rhymes with Schmeri Schmain, perhaps. But, Nick, um, I think it's only fair for you to get the first crack at everything that happened off the pitch as well, because that really overshadowed um, the entire event. You know, kickoff was scheduled for 3 p.m. Eastern or uh, 9 p.m. Uh, Paris time, but it didn't end up kicking off until 3.36 because of a number of gaffes and disrespect and aggression. But Nick, um, how did this, how do you think this affected Liverpool's performance on the pitch? And what do you think the the result will be uh, of everything that's happened since then? I don't know if it affected anything on the pitch in terms of how the game played out, but it was obviously, you know, on the minds of the players, you saw that Joel Matip's family 
had to find refuge in a restaurant because they were getting, you know, tear gassed and harassed by French police. You now, Andy Robertson, one of his friends who he personally gave a ticket to the game, was not allowed entry into the match. And he found out, you know, after everything had you know, wrapped up on the fields. So it was clearly affecting at least like the participants of the match on the pitch. I'm not sure, you know, how it actually affected the game state as a whole. I think these players are pretty good at, you know, blocking things out. They are professionals. In terms of, you know, the scenes that we saw on Saturday, I mean, it's an, it's an absolute disgrace. And it comes, you know, almost a year after the disgraceful scenes we saw at Wembley after, you know, the final of the Euros. And it's the second time in a row that a UEFA, a big UEFA marquee event is going to be mired in controversy and disgraceful scenes and violence and all the things that you know we thought we had left behind in an age of football past but it certainly seems post you know the pandemic is coming back to the forefront in really scary ways um, another incident happened this weekend in France following the relegation of Saint-Étienne to the to Ligue 2 where their fans you know invaded the pitch and attacked both like the, their players and AG Auxerre, which is like the team that they were, you know, playing against to to fight for, uh, to keep their spot in Liga, and that was disgraceful as well, that sort of pitch invasion. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, where there's something, there's something really vile brewing just in terms of fan culture and the way that things are responding to that. But that has nothing to do with the scenes that we saw at the Champions League final on Saturday. I think this was... You know, in in the subsequent response of the French authorities trying to pin everything on the fans, this was a case of you know soccer fans being hoarded like cattle. They were being treated supremely unfairly, and I think you know the stigma of of hooliganism doesn't warrant you know a response like this from from French officials. And I know that you know France itself has had a fairly strict crackdown on on events and gatherings and crowds and French policing has gotten far more aggressive since, you know, certain incidents of the past four years in the French capital have, have caused them to do so. But this was, I mean, it was disgraceful. Women, children, uh, elderly fans were being, you know, tear gassed and attacked by police and the lack of security and organization from UEFA, from UEFA to even get these fans into the ground for kickoff was stunning as well. And, you know, Liverpool is a club that has dealt with, you know, scapegoating and pushback and, you know, fan tragedy for decades at this point, you know, the disaster at Hillsborough amongst many other tragedies. So it's just another form of collective trauma that these fans are going to have to go through. And it doesn't sound like it was just Liverpool. It sounds like Madrid fans were experiencing very similar things, very similar you know, acts of violence from police on their end as well. And I think it it really, to me, it soured the whole occasion. It felt very weird to watch this game knowing that, you know, this stuff was going on outside of the stadium. And I don't know about you guys, but it's difficult to even talk about this because it just really aggravates me so much. And just to know that, you know, there are Liverpool fans who probably attended this game after going through what they went through at Hillsborough is just sickening to me. Yeah, as you said, there's really only one word to describe this whole situation, which is a disgrace. Um, 
it's it's a massive failure of of event management in general um, because presumably you want the fans in the stadium for for kickoff time if only to get kickoff going but also to create the atmosphere that is so special it was a failure of security it seems like several choices by you know the french police by event staff you know created these constricted entry points that created you know very unsafe scenarios and then there are several accounts of basically you know those same staff basically abandoning their their posts um as well which also creates you know chaos um it's disgraceful that you know uefa blamed the fans for this um fans who showed up several hours early to to the ground to to get in um in an orderly fashion and to be able to to sort of ensure that they were properly in their seats um before the match began it's also a disgrace from the french government um who you know their interior minister i believe you know praised the sort of bravery blah 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 of you know the french police in responding to the the acts of fan violence aggression it, it just as you said this is the second major uefa game in a row in another country that has shown that they just can't do these events and for the second time going i think uefa is kind of refusing to take any responsibility for what they could have done and that doesn't give me great faith moving forward that they'll be able to do it again um and you know in in the france context in particular you know they're hosting the world cup or not the world cup sorry the olympics um in a few years and i think an event like this um will definitely you know introduce some anxiety in into people that that might otherwise want to attend events at at this stadium for that yeah right the french minister sorry Nathan, <laughs> to cut you off but like the french minister today you know had another press conference where he blamed this whole ordeal on 30,000 to 40,000 Liverpool fans who turned up to the game without tickets or with counterfeit tickets. Now, if that seems far-fetched to you, it should, because that's, you know, complete and other untruths. And he also, the accompanying quote that he gave to the media today was, manifestly, this kind of incident only seems to happen with, quote, certain English clubs, end quote. So I think you can you can clearly see that, you know, there is some sort of blame being shifted once again onto football fans who I, I think are unfairly quite frequently cast as, you know, hooligans and rebels and people who, you know, like to cause trouble. And in this case, you know, we saw scenes of Liverpool fans just waiting and behaving properly and orderly, waiting in cramped spaces, being pushed up between walls. Uh, showing their their valid tickets to get into matches and to, to get into the ground and, and being ignored by security staff and police, you know, as they're feeling the crush. And like Caleb said, like I can, after experiencing something like this, if I was at the game, there's no reason why I would ever consider returning to a football match. And just on the whole, I think this damages, you know, the reputation of the sport. It damages, you know, the viewing experience of fans and, it's just like, it's why would we, you know, it, it's just why would we attend 
why attend live events if you're going to be treated in, in this manner? Right. And all of this is happening too with the backdrop of UEFA trying to make, trying to amend the format of the Champions League, particularly of the Champions League semifinals to a single city um, March Madness style tournament. Um, obviously, there are other Champions League changes that we'll talk about at some point in the future, but it's certainly it should be a big indictment of UEFA's um, competence, which I, I I think was already teetering on the brink. Um, and yeah, I mean it's it's very fire festival esque. It's um, it, a lot of there are a lot of groups that share blame, and I think UEFA's uh, chief amongst them. And I think there is a little bit of Frenchness about this too, like you said, Nick, and also Caleb. Like France as a nation is sort of prone to social unrest in a way that's like distinctly french uh, i'm sure you guys have seen like the john oliver about the time when like the firefighters were protesting the police and uh self-immolated in front of like a police barricade uh, and obviously a nation that's prone to sort of the general strike as well makes for uneasy hosting um, of a massive massive event with you know almost a hundred thousand people showing up the only funny thing that came um prior to this game that I think we can talk about and use as a segue to our recap is there was a group of Liverpool fans who were trying to make their way to Paris. And, you know, so they booked a coach from Liverpool uh, to, you know, <laughs> take them. Uh, and, you know, they booked a coach under a generic name. Uh, it was like first star coach lines, uh, which is a company registered to one Richard Arlison. Uh, and the whole thing was a scam set up by an Everton fan designed to just troll Liverpool fans. And to be fair, in this day and age, if you don't do like 10 minutes worth of due diligence on the airline you travel on, the bus companies you take, it was a company that had no reviews. So I, I don't feel too much sympathy here, um, although it is, you know, pretty funny uh, in the abstract. But I think with no, that... I mean, like, it still sucks for them that they Oh, bought, yeah, oh, yeah, of course, it's biggest... still, it still sucks for them, but it's not some kind of giant cosmic injustice like... Um, like what we were just talking about previous. What I will say is that Richarlison himself retweeted this with like a photo, a photoshopped of his ugly face on like a bus driver <laughs> and proving once again that this man Richarlison, not only is he a talentless hack of a footballer who I hope his career steadily oh goes down the toilet. I oh wish only God. I Nick. wish only him had gotten relegated this season and Everton had stayed up. Like only him drops the championship. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Um, uh, I think with that, we should probably move on to the second half of our episode, which will be uh, a lot more fun. I think this is the first time we're doing this in such a way. But, um, you know, every year at the beginning of the Premier League season, typically the night before or the week of the opening match day, the three of us sit down and we, we go through the summer of transfers um, using the Guardians website uh, and give our predictions on where teams will finish if we'll have any surprises, either in terms of players finding success or clubs over or underperforming. And this year, at the end of that preview episode, which was a two-part episode because we went into such depth, we each went around um, and gave our predicted final table uh, for the season. Needless to say, we were all incredibly wrong on the balance of things. Uh, but before we get to the sort of numerology. I was curious, you know, what what you guys thought about that episode as a whole and if there were any bigger takeaways um, other than, you know, the table itself. 
I think the the crazy thing for me was our mid table predictions. You know, Caleb and I had Leeds United finishing ninth. I had Everton finishing in tenth. And I think it was a tough, tough season for clubs like Leeds, Everton, in certain respects, Aston Villa, who we had finishing, you know, seventh and eighth. I think around that point, the three of us, I think Caleb and I had Aston Villa to finish above Arsenal. And we couldn't have predicted, you know, the 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 Dean Smith sacking. You know, there are several things that we couldn't have predicted. We couldn't have predicted, you know, the the fact that the three transfers that Villa had brought in to, you know, salvage Grealish leaving and to replace him in the way, in the kind of the unique way that they set about to do that would also not be super successful in the appointment of Steven Gerrard. Um, but I think, you know, there were certain things that we didn't consider in terms of, you know, the Bielsa fatigue that definitely came into play uh, with Leeds, <clears throat> excuse me, with Leeds this season. And then for me, the big one was how the disaster of, of Everton Football Club and not being able to, you know, foreshadows certain elements of that, you know, the Benitez hire, et cetera. So, yeah, I think for me, obviously I, for whatever reason, um, was feeling very strongly about Norwich City and had them not only safe, but I think in the kind of, you know, closer closer to like the top half of the table. Yeah, you had them 14. Yeah. Um, obviously, they were the worst team. In, in the division um, by, by a fairly large margin. I feel like there was less going on there um, than at Watford by much more than the single point that separated them in the final table. I also think, you know, and this was something we all got wrong considering I think all three of us or maybe two of the three of us thought Chelsea would win. We thought that the Lukaku we all transfer... Thought Chelsea would win. Yeah, that we thought the Lukaku transfer was, you know, foolproof. Um, it, it flop proof. We we thought it could only lead to untold success and riches, and that is not what happened to Chelsea. Honestly, for like the third season running, when we thought that they were primed for an offensive explosion, we could not have foreseen you know their owner being sanctioned. But even before then, you know Lukaku was not living up to his billing. So that was another blind spot for me, and then. Manchester United were so much worse than anything we could have predicted. And then last and the, one, yeah. <laughs> last one, I would just say in terms of being better is, you know, Spurs, I think, outperformed our expectations by, by a fairly large margin. But we didn't know that they would, you know, sack Nuno and appoint Conte and then make some savvy transfers. So there are lots of things we don't know. Um, yeah, those are some of the big things that that stood out to me on on first. It really, plans. should be the the title of this episode. Things happen things, in yeah. a season. Well, that <laughs> was uh, that was pretty close to that was pretty close to last week's title, uh, which was uh, if I'm not mistaken, a bunch of leagues and cups are won. Uh, so we're we're hitting a, a theme here. But yeah, I think it's important to note that we recorded this because the the transfer window, unlike two years ago, the transfer window shut. Uh, you know, on September 1st at midnight, which is, I think, how it should be done. Uh, there were a few key transfers that we didn't have access to um, or knowledge of that obviously impacted the season. For example, Ronaldo to United and Odegaard to Arsenal both filled voids that we talked about in uh, when we were discussing each of those teams. Like, we, we, we 
lathered praise on Cavani, who obviously ended up being like a bit part player this year. And even we, I mean, I had United in third, uh, Nick had United in fourth, and Caleb had United in third. Even with Ronaldo's addition, they still uh, massively underperformed. And Nick, to your earlier point, Leeds of all the teams um, were the ones who underperformed the most based on where we, we ranked them um, by an average of 7.66 places, followed by Aston Villa with an average of 6.66 places. So, um, you know, Arsenal outperformed all three of our predictions. Uh, and I did think it was interesting uh, listening to us talk about the relegation battle because, uh, Nick, I'm not trying to rag on you here, but you knew it was coming. No, Nick I had a shocker. Me. I had a shocker here. I'll be totally, me. I was gonna. Nick I was gonna me. at some point address this. I. I, I feel uh, like. <laughs> so, so before before we get to um, before we get to before we get to who is on average the most correct, a particular area of uh, things that needs to be addressed is Nick's bottom three, which was Brentford in 18th. They ended up finishing 13th. Watford in 19th, which he got spot on. And the incredible placement of Southampton in 20th <laughs> when they finished in 15th, but were comfortably safe just about the whole season. Nick, I'm curious if you uh, have anything to say for yourself on that front. I feel like I need to do like a notes app apology <laughs> to like the Southampton fans, Ralph Hasenhuttle, James Ward-Prowse. Um, yeah, listen, I didn't think the Southampton team was composed of nearly enough Premier League quality to stay in the division this season. Uh, this is a team that frequently gets hammered 9-0 at least once on an occasion uh, throughout the course of a Premier League campaign. Um, they had lost Yannick Vestergaard, uh, who I think was a key component in their back line. And they had lost Danny Ings. And I was just not convinced that Ralph was, who I think is a great coach, was getting suitable replacements. However, I think Ralph Hasenhüttl has supremely overperformed with the resources that he has been given at Southampton. Now, Southampton are not a club that spends freely anymore. They're certainly a club that looks to recruit um, in a budget sort of capacity, and they look to be savvy in terms of the players that they bring in, players like Mohamed Salisu, who it takes a while for them to you know, get up to speed with the Premier League, but end up being quality players. Uh, I just wasn't convinced that they had quite enough to stay in the division. I will admit that 20th, I don't really know what I was thinking there. Well, but... Nick, I, I want to interject, though, because Southampton were in 10th place at Christmas, and they finished the season. If you look at the form table since New Year's well, they Eve, didn't, they haven't gotten a they win. Actually finished, like, well, they actually finished. Well, they actually they finished in 18th. If you go by the second half of the season, so your prediction wasn't as far off. If you look at just you know January through May, but it's interesting that you know that was obviously before Livermento got injured, um, before uh, you know the winter transfer window. So your prediction looked a lot worse at the beginning of the year than it actually ended up looking. If you uh, look at the last few months of play. They were so reliant on players like Armando Broya, who they brought in on loan from Chelsea, and Tino Livermento, who I think they signed on a really budget deal. On, I think it was about like £5 million, who ended up, I think, being probably their player of the season alongside James Ward-Prowse, who continues to be you know, one of the Premier League's um, standard bearers in terms of midfield play. 
However, I think, you know, can you sustain that season on, season on? And that's going to be the big question for how, how Ralph Posenhutl and Southampton, who are under, you know, new ownership coming into this summer. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what they do, how they maneuver in the window in order to give him, you know, the support that he needs to, I think, stave off another relegation battle. Yeah, and, and to your credit, Nick, you know, some of the things you pointed out as being big question marks for the team were scoring and where those goals would come from. Um, and we also thought that Che Adams would be out injured for longer than he was. He finished as their top scorer this year with 10. And I assume like half of those, or maybe like four out of 10, are free kicks. Che Adams only had seven, and he was their second top scorer. And he's, you know, the highest scoring natural attacking player. So I think, you know, there are reasons to be concerned about the longevity of the Southampton squad. However, yeah, 20th was was always going to be a bit of a strip. What about Brentford? Because, you know, I had them in 16th. Nick and Caleb, you both had them going down. Uh, do you think it's time that we give Thomas Frank and Brentford's whole sort of money ball approach? Do, do you think we deserve, it's time for us to give them their flowers in a way? Yeah, I mean, so on Brentford, I expressed some skepticism about, you know, the translatability of Ivan Tony's goal scoring to the Premier League. And to his credit, I think he had about as good a season as you could expect um, in a first season in the Prem for a newly promoted team with 12 goals and five assists. The big thing, though, that we did not see at all was obviously the somewhat miraculous, in, in a lot of senses, signing of Christian Eriksen in the winter transfer window, who I think pretty quickly revolutionized what that team was doing in the midfield. Um, and is by far, you know, the highest quality player at that club. Um, and so both of those things definitely contributed to them, you know, being the one newly promoted club that survived and survived um, comfortably. And so I do owe them, I guess, some some flowers. However, I think if Ericsson doesn't arrive at this club, they are a lot deeper in this relegation battle um, than they finished up. I think that means that it's time for us to discuss one club and one man who, well, let's start off with the club. We all picked Watford to go down. Um, they did go down in quite spectacular fashion, but there's a great clip from this preview episode that we'll play now for you discussing the arrival of one man, a man by the name of Emmanuel Dennis. You want to talk about a team finishing 20th place? Look no further, my friends. Their solution at striker is <laughs> is is Josh King, who's who's legit and he's a Premier League quality player. But Emmanuel Dennis, who is he? You might ask. That's a question I had myself before this podcast. Emmanuel Dennis, twenty three year old, comes from. Well, he was on loan in the Bundesliga last year, but mostly has played in the Belgian league where he has never scored more than seven goals in the league. Oh, no. His top scoring season ever was when he scored 12 goals in all competitions as like a 19-year-old in 2017-18. Last season, he had zero goals in the league for Club Bruges in nine appearances before making a loan move to Cologne, where he also scored zero goals in nine <laughs> appearances. Like, talk about 
a way to lose three and a half million dollars like nothing i mean it's pretty much like <laughs> it's, it's pretty much a bitcoin and emmanuel dennis um i i, I hate to harp on this guy because like Although i don't know at least bitcoin fluctuates caleb uh emmanuel dennis you know, was obviously the focal point of, of that of that conversation and, and, and you know, talking about how Watford spent. Uh, but, you know, do you think that Watford truly wasted $3 million on Emmanuel Dennis? I mean, now, no, um, considering he had 10 goals and six assists in the season. But... You know, I, I don't know why I went in so hard on Emmanuel Dennis in that preview pod. I think I was just looking for, you know, a Watford transfer of the, like, reams of them um, to sort of point out its kind of strangeness. And I'm not sure anyone could have predicted this return from this player, who once again went scoreless in all of last season, where he played half the season in the Belgian league. And so excuse me for not, you know, rating a $3 million transfer of an attacker who has shown, frankly, an inability to attack previously. Um, but maybe Watford's <laughs> scouting department or presumably knew something that I did not. I will say though, he had a very strong start to the season, but he definitely tailed off a bunch um, sort of towards the end of the campaign. And so, you know, we'll see how he, if he stays at Watford, how he transitions to championship play. But I do think he probably overperformed his actual ability quite a bit in a kind of cosmic karmic way of telling me to like, you know, lay off people sometime. You know, like well, what, what did Emmanuel Dennis ever do to me? He had a stretch so. of games from November to the first week of January where he had a goal and two assists against United was man of the match a goal against Leicester the next week, a goal against Chelsea the next week, a goal against Brentford the next week, a goal against Watford the week after that, and then things sort of all fell apart and he got sent off in Watford's loss to Norwich that really sort of finalized Watford's place uh, you know, in the championship for next season. Well, and I think he was one of the players who Watford blocked from going to the African Cup of Nations, and I think that eventually soured his relationship with the club towards the latter end of the season. So yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens with Emmanuel Dennis going forward. And I'm sure, you know, the chopping and changing of the managerial situation at that club this season could not have helped him both in, you know, in terms of getting back onto the pitch and finding his form again. But what I will say is that Emmanuel Dennis had an extremely important part to play in this season. And that is he was the catalyst for getting Ole Gunnar Solskjaer out of Manchester United following that 4-1 you know, thrashing of United at uh, Vicarage Road. And he was the person with the goal and the two assists, and he was really the man who was the best player on that pitch and eventually you know, saw Ole through the door. And Ralph Ranick uh, joining as the interim interim manager, then consultant, and now none of those things. Yeah, I, I mean, let's talk about United for a minute because a thing that I noticed when we discussed United, and this was obviously pre-Ronaldo transfer, is... Each of us basically began our segment on United by saying, this team is going to be so good. They have one flaw. And we each had like a different flaw that we brought to the table. Like Nick, you talked about um, them having to start McFred, um, which obviously was a huge issue throughout the course of the year. 
Caleb, we sort of talked more about like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And um, obviously there were some off the pitch things that we couldn't have predicted uh, in terms of where United got their goals from that I don't think we should even go into at all. But I thought it was interesting how the three of us in bringing one issue about this team to light ended up kind of predicting their downfall, even while saying like, oh, this team should really finish top four. Yeah, United, I think they had everything going for them when we recorded. I mean, they had bought Varane, who I think Nick mentioned that, you know, probably is past his peak. Um, there was probably a reason Madrid decided to cash in on him, and I think that definitely proved to, to be true. They bought Jaden Sancho, though, who looked, you know, despite having to get over an injury at the beginning of the season, potentially like a ready-to-go attacking player striker was was a question that we had but nathan you mentioned earlier in the pod that you know we thought that uh cavani could kind of see them through in a lot of ways i wonder how much of that would have come to pass without the ronaldo transfer which we didn't have the benefit of knowing would occur i think we've discussed plenty of times over the course of this season how sort of discordant he is as a person with, you know, probably the rest of the squad and also with the state and the stage of this United project. I also think that, you know, as bad as Solstreyer was as a manager or as sort of mediocre, maybe bad is, is too strong a word, he at least had, you know, some United heritage and, and some connections to the players. Rangnick, though... Ha, had none of that he hadn't really coached you know in like a top league for for quite a bit and had really kind of he's more of like a a, a godfather of, of soccer rather than kind of you know a day-to-day manager at this point and it proved over the second half of the season as basically everyone had poor form Bruno Fernandes included Rashford who had you know injury problems but also I think a loss of confidence that this team really totally lost its way. Um, and after finishing second last season, finished with their worst performance in the Premier League post-Ferguson. And honestly, I thought we were past that stage with like Moyes a decade ago. Um, but here we are again, and Ten Hogs coming in, and it's another summer to retool. Um, but certainly we, we, we were quite wrong about Manchester United. And I also think that uh, it's it's kind of funny that, you know, United under Rangnick, a move that was like very highly regarded. Like, I think we actually talked about saying like, oh, wow, like this is a great appointment. This is someone who will like change the culture of the club. They actually had like a significantly worse points per game ratio under him uh, than they had under Solskjaer. So it is kind of unfortunate that Solskjaer was never really able to, I guess, buck the preconceptions about him. And I do think that he did have his flaws, but, um, you know, I think United are in for a heck of a summer having barely qualified for the Europa League. Uh, another team that I think we should talk about. Can I just, on, my, oh. on Ralph Raniuk, sorry. Oh, of course. On Ralph Raniuk, I just want to say what a legend this man is for coming into Manchester <laughs> United. <laughs> Let's just talk about this for a sec. This man, comes from Russia, locomotive Moscow, comes into Manchester United, 
makes all of the players hate him, brings in training methods that they all abhor, uh, continues to get tactical advice from his second-in-command, who is still in Russia, still working for Locomotive Moscow, did not move with him to Manchester, has a worse points per game than the man he replaced, um, has a public falling out with Cristiano Ronaldo, has a public falling out with Paul Pogba, uh, com- has what seems to have been a public falling out with John Murtaugh and the and the Glazers and the whole structure, points out several fundamental issues with how Manchester United is run, has one remote conversation with Eric Ten Hag, does not meet him in person, and then gets the hell out of here and does not follow up with the consultancy role and then goes to coach Austria. Yeah, honestly, uh, that's a pretty legendary move. Right that's there. what I like to call business yeah ladies and gentlemen absolute king move right there leaving united for the worst um yeah obviously huge summer ahead for united and the glazers uh especially because they will not be getting Aurelien Chouameni who will be going to Real Madrid but another team that I think we should talk about just briefly uh and I know that you know we didn't have the Odegaard transfer at all but you know after when we talked about Arsenal at the very beginning of the season, I was sort of like, yeah, like the goal is to get back into Europe. And then Caleb comes in with Nick, how do we take this man down a peg? Uh, And I think it's important to note that at that time, Arsenal had had a really underwhelming summer and we didn't even know that they were going to lose their first three games of the season in the next two weeks. Uh, We talked about the valid concerns around Aubameyang and Lacazette. Obviously, Aubameyang fell out of favor and then was sold in January. And all of this, I think, goes to show that Arsenal probably overperformed and I think deserve a little bit of praise for how this season turned out, even with the disappointing sort of finish and the collapse, um, you know, to Spurs and whatnot. Uh, It was kind of interesting to be taken back to our mentality at the beginning of the season about this team. Yeah, what I will say is that where I where I can praise Mikel Arteta is that we all had Chelsea winning the Premier League, and even though we couldn't have predicted, you know, the sanctions and all the things, all the the discordant nature surrounding Chelsea this season, they still had a squad that won them the European Cup last season, and several world class players with the addition of Romelu Lukaku in another season under the coaching of a world-class manager like Thomas Tuchel. And they only finished five points ahead of this Arsenal team. Chelsea finishing on 74 and Arsenal finishing on 69. Nice. nice. However, <laughs> I think there there are a few things that, that you brought up, Nathan, that I think changed the trajectory of this Arsenal team for me. And that is the fact that, you know, they've had to overcome adversity for the first time, I think, under the Mikel Arteta regime. And when I say overcome adversity... I mean, they have not really done that all that much in Arteta's tenure. They sort of folded, shall we say. The mentality of Arsenal has not been great for the past two or three years. And I think this season you saw some resiliency from Arteta, you know, losing those first three games, having that really disastrous first game of the season against Brentford excuse me, at the community stadium. And he really had to, you know, dig deep, be intelligent with his transfers, rely on trusted hands like you know Martin Odegaard who became the club captain and he had to make really key decisions such as letting Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang leave on a free transfer 
to Barcelona, completely cutting ties with him. And I think this is a coach who has come under a lot of criticism in the first, you know, first real stage of his career, shall we say. And this was a season where he stuck to his guns and finished two points off of, you know, one of the great managers in world football right now in Antonio Conte at Tottenham, who had two world-class players to work with in Harry Kane and Hunmanson. And in my opinion, you know, there are plenty of players at Arsenal who can become world-class, like Bukayo Saka. Arteta is not working with a world-class squad right now. So I think to come in fifth and to, you know, be competing for a fourth-place spot this season is admirable. And I think if they can get players like Thomas Partey fit, if they can do some business in the summer, if they can get players like Nicolas Pepe off the books, if they can add to, you know, it is a really poor rotational option in, you know, Nuno Tavares, Cedric Suarez, players like that. I think they can they can do this again next season because I think a lot of this was down to, you know, the savviness of Arteta, who I think deserves a lot of credit this season. Yeah, by the yeah. way, all while playing with the squad that was by almost a full year, uh, the youngest average starting 11 in the league. Yeah, I think this is a good example of, I feel like when a team is kind of at its lowest and it brings in a new manager and then you get through, you know, whatever the new manager bump is, which as we know is really just a slight regression to the mean, then there's this expectation that they need to kick on from there pretty rapidly, or at least fan bases can have a lack of patience. And I think Arsenal's fan base is is known for for a certain lack of patience. And here, what we're in, you know, season two and a half from him, um, this is a good example of you know what giving a coach time can do, right? Arsenal finished eighth last year, which by all accounts was, you know, unfortunate to be that low in the standings, although I'm not sure they really deserve to be much higher. And I think a lot of clubs would be tempted to sack, you know, a rookie novice manager, even with, you know, the club connection in that scenario. So credit to the club for giving Arteta a chance to sort of move this club into its next phase. And if they can get a good sort of striking option this summer, I think they can really you know, have a, they can feel more confident in actually thinking that they can make the Champions League next year. That said, this Arsenal team was still way closer to Spurs and Chelsea than they should have been. I mean, their goal difference is less than half of Spurs. It's a third of Chelsea's. Um, They lost 13 games, um, which suggests to me that, you know, they're not really good at you know, even snatching draws, which they'll need to do. And I think they probably overperform by like nine points or something this year. So the gap between them and Chelsea, who, you know, were not awesome this year, and Spurs, who I think lived up to sort of their greatest potential, is bigger than the table suggests. So it'll be interesting to see what they do in the summer. And I, I agree that, you know, credit should be given to the club. And I think entering next year, for the first time in four years or something, Arsenal can actually be confident about gaining European football. But I kind of stick by my guns at the beginning of the year um, that you know this Arsenal team was still very much a work in progress and in my mind continue to be compared to sort of the other top four, top six yeah, besides I, Man U. In, in my opinion, the biggest indictment of 
the not being able to overcome adversity aspect, which I think has plagued Arsenal for quite some time, is the fact that Champions League football was well within their hands, even after, you know, the really demoralizing North London derby result at the end of the season. Arsenal had two games to play against, you know, admittedly more difficult opponents than Spurs at the end of the season, but definitely games where they could have won and, you know, blocked off, you know, the, the disappointment of losing that derby. They didn't. They went into those games looking very beleaguered and at the end of the day were not able to secure a top four spot that was totally within their hands. So I think, you know, this team is young, like Nathan pointed out. And I think certainly at times there is that bit of naivety there from from Mikel Arteta's side. And I think this is a team with plenty of promise, but also both on the mentality side and on the on the pitch side, there is a long way to go in order to season them into a top four contender perennially indeed well i think it's about time for us to just look at the numbers i think uh, can, we, can we talk oh, about newcastle as the one oh, yeah team yeah let's talk highlight. about let's talk about newcastle caleb uh obviously they ended up finishing in 11th which was higher than any of us uh, were willing to place them you and nick had them in 13th i had them in 15th but obviously some some big changes were afoot midway through the season right we yeah we could not have predicted that after, you know, failing the first time around, uh, the FA and the league would, you know, acquiesce and Saudi Arabia would purchase Newcastle. If there was any question about who the owners of this club are, look no further than next season's away kit, which is just the Saudi Arabia national team kit. Um, but with that new owner which now makes them you know like another order of magnitude wealthier than even manchester city by like the net wealth of their ownership uh they were able to bring in some pretty good signings like uh bruno gimaresh um who was probably one of the top midfielders in league un and proved to be quality they were also able to steal key components of you know other relegation threatened teams around them um and when this club was bought and when they brought you know eddie howe in they were what in 19th place even 20th without um, a win without a win um at kind of mid-year ish um and so to recover from that to to 11th is impressive you know even despite the the massive influx of resources and money etc we could not have predicted this we thought this storyline was done and dusted. And now I am extremely curious what they're able to accomplish this summer um, because they will surely be offering ridiculous paychecks uh, to players to try to lure them uh, to Newcastle and Tyneside. Absolutely. Uh, I think with that, we can look at the official table. Uh, I tallied up where everyone predicted each club would land and using a very simple formula of losing a point or gaining a point rather for each place off uh, in third place for this year's corner kick predictions with a total of 68 points off or 68 places off is Caleb Rhodes, who was hugely hampered by being eight spots off for Brighton, oh. uh, six spots off for Norwich and eight spots off for Leeds, although that was often canceled out by the three of us. So tough bid for Caleb. 
yeah, you know, I think the next season in, will be better. In reaction to that, I think those two, like I think specifically, you know, Brighton and Wolves were two teams that I don't think we really discussed all that much in our preview, and I also don't think we discussed much today. But they're two teams that I think really overperformed the sum of their both the sum of their parts, and I think we really saw the quality of coaching just in the Premier League in that mid table in terms of Bruno Lage and and Graham Potter, who I think really at the start of the season, you know, they both really overperformed their sides. I think they regressed to the mean somewhat. And it'll be interesting to see. I think Wolves are pretty secure in keeping Lodge, but Graham Potter continues to be, you know, a person of interest for several clubs. Yeah, I mean, the there were only four points that separated Leicester in eighth and Palace in twelfth, which is a, a pretty good indication of how you know, the numbers that we gave in terms of being off by certain places could realistically have been a lot closer. Uh, and, you know, the, the real division of mid-table comes from West Ham finishing in seventh, who were obviously challenging for top four for much of the season. Then Leicester, with 52 points, were significantly closer to, uh, to, to, to even Brentford in 13th with 46. Like, that's only a six-point gap between eighth and 13th, really. But uh, in second place, nearly catching up to Caleb uh, and only being two spots improved is the one and only Nick Govindin. Uh, we talked about his Southampton prediction earlier today. Uh, he also had Everton in 10th. And I think that's a team that we haven't talked about yet. But obviously, we have talked about them at length this year. They stayed up by the skin of their teeth. But... Certainly, it was not the season that we expected from a team that was initially led by Rafa Benitez. No, no, it was not. And I don't think we truly could have overestimated or underestimated the the absolute disaster that was Everton's season from pretty much all fronts, from the injury front, uh, particularly the injury to Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I think the absolute unraveling that was the end of Rafa Benitez's tenure at Everton came as, you know, not so much of a surprise, but I think certainly the speed of it was quite surprising. And then, yes, you know, the appointment of Frank Lampard, who had a pretty rough beginning to his life on Merseyside in terms of results, but at the end of the day was able to just and only just get them over the line with, you know, the return of of the likes of Dominic Calvert-Lewin and, and key players like Michael Keane to his squad. So yeah, I think Everton are going to be in this position again next season. That's just a little spoiler for our Premier League prediction show in August. Uh, obviously, a lot's going to depend on what they can do in the summer transfer window. This club is obviously still hampered by FFP regulations and financial issues. So I don't think they're quite out of the woods yet, but certainly in terms of the relegation fight this season, they just made it over the line. And then in first place... Certainly a rarity for me since the founding of this podcast. I've been known for making some outlandishly incorrect uh, predictions. But for the first time, uh, largely due to the fact that I got the bottom three correct and in the correct order with Burnley, Watford, and Norwich going down in 18th, 19th, and 20th, I was only 56 total uh, places off the pace, uh, finishing first in this lackluster group of three. So the moral of the story is, we were all pretty crap, uh, especially with the mid-table and below, and hopefully we can see across-the-board improvement for next year. I'm just imagining all the different formulas Nathan concocted to figure out the one where he finished first. 
Uh, it was well, like that, it's like that scene in Avengers Infinity War where like Doctor Strange is like looking into the future at like all the possible ways uh, they can beat Thanos and there's only one and Nathan somehow managed to find that one. No, no. But I'm, I also, I'm, I'm kidding. I also had, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm kidding. Well deserved. Well Nathan, deserved. And yes. you know, we'll be back. Bask. Yeah, I'm going to bask yeah. in this glory. Um, and speaking of basking in glory, our next episode is the, I know you've been waiting intently for this, the Corner Kick Awards, round two. Oh, so yeah. we will have all of your traditional favorites, player of the season team, the season manager, the season, etc., as well as your normal, um, you know, sort of out of the blue, weird awards that we'll figure out a way to concoct in the next couple of weeks. Your um, normal out of the blue awards, naturally. Or sorry, I mean, the, you know, if there's one thing about Corner Kick, it's to expect the unexpected, you know, stuff happens, Cup, cups get won. Uh, things are said incorrectly by the three of us. Uh, but player that looks best as Chia Pet, <laughs> Richarlison. Oh, well, didn't it's we have? Bald. Was, was it Richarlison, or didn't dead. we have like? Wasn't the award like that we were going to give people a Chia Pet for a while? Yes, no, oh yeah, sure. there was. That was um. That was two years ago. That was right after we Project mailed, Restart. Uh, yeah, we mailed, we mailed our, our Chia Pet to Zlatan. Yeah, the yeah. ACL, <laughs> the winner of the Caleb Rhodes ACL Transplant Award of the Year will go to Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Um, I said the uh, Caleb Rhodes Memorial Trophy, and I was like, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite. Uh, yeah, actually, the loser of predictions has to give up all their organs next year. Um, but with that being said, we will see you next time for the Corner Kick Awards. Not a whole lot on the soccer horizon. We've got USA Morocco tomorrow. We've got the first leg of the... Uh, World Cup playoff uh, between you know Ukraine, Scotland, and Wales. The winner That's of Ukraine, late. Scotland. Well, it's the winner of Ukraine, Scotland oh, will play okay. Wales. Uh, you know, so it's really a semifinal and then a final. But that's for the final spot in the World Cup uh, this upcoming winter. And then you know it's a bunch of Nations League stuff, MLS, yada yada yada. Really entering. Oh no! And there's the uh, the Diego Maradona. Italy Argentina game tomorrow. Oh, yeah, the finalissimo. Yeah, the finalissimo. Yeah. Which I'm quite looking forward to. Although that's kind of watered down considering Italy didn't make the World <laughs> Cup. <laughs> yeah. Um, it certainly would have been a lot more impressive had that happened in like 1980. Oh, uh, yeah. But, you know, I'm looking forward. That'll be a good game as well, I imagine. Probably a very emotional one. Yes. Tears will be shed, I think, from, from both the Napolese and also the Argentines alike. Uh, but we will keep you abreast on all those issues, uh, as well as the international friendlies, et cetera, et cetera. But Corner Kick Awards on the horizon. Who will slap whom? You'll just have to tune back in to find out. But I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Reds. I've been Nick Vinn, and I'm going to slap Nathan. Yeah, I would have deserved that. I would have deserved that. You missed your chance last night. But we'll see you all next time.